Father, we are a people who have just wholeheartedly and with depth of sincerity proclaimed to you that, that we bow at your feet because you are our God. We thank you, Father, as, as we rehearse your story, which also is our story. We, we thank you, we praise you that it is true that it is possible for us to bow down before you, our God. We share a history with all of humanity that is, is one of a fallen people refusing to bow down to you, who because of the cancer of our souls, which is sin, we have been bent against worshiping the one true God and therefore cut off from knowing you, living with you, enjoying you. The centuries have shown that no matter what external means have been brought upon us, we could not be changed because our hearts were not changed. But then you sent your Son, Jesus, who took the penalty for our sins, who rose from the dead, that we might have life, that we might have new hearts, that we might have His Spirit living inside of us, that we might be what You created us to be, which is those who know You, who love You, who serve You, who bow down before You as Your people and You are God. We praise You that these things are true. And we ask, Lord, that as we open our Bibles and consider together just a few verses, that the truths we find there would, would solidify our resolve to worship You alone, would solidify in our hearts the truth that Jesus alone can reconcile sinners to a holy God, that we would be all the more emboldened to tell His story to the people around us. Father, would you please use your word to have your way in your people this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. This morning, we're just considering four verses, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. So let's stand together, and I'll read those verses, and then we'll consider them. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, 
purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You may be seated. I have a brother-in-law who is extremely competitive. This is not the brother-in-law that many of you know. But he's very competitive. Of course, I'm not competitive at all, not, not even a tiny little bit. But over the years, when I have rarely beat him at anything, I can count on him saying this verbatim. Oh, man, so close. I almost beat you. And I think if I don't say almost winning is exactly the same thing as losing. Frank Robinson, many of you know who he is. He's one of the greatest figures in sports history. He once said about a, a, a game, baseball, he was talking about, he said, close don't count. Close counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. Most of us get the hand grenades part. If you don't understand the horseshoes part, ask somebody over 50. But we, we saw that last week, the, the, the tabernacle reg regulations... They got us so close, close to God, far closer than man might have been with, without the tabernacle, but close was what? It was not good enough. It might as well be not close at all. If, if the prize is something like what we had in Eden, unfettered access to God, living in fellowship with and service to Him. That's what was lost in the beginning. And, and, and so then what the tabernacle gives us, which is one man entering God's presence for a few minutes once a year, that's just not close enough. Why would anyone be satisfied with getting close to knowing and enjoying God? In, the, in these verses, the author contrasts the old covenant regulations and blood sacrifices with those of the new covenant. And here's the big idea that he, that he puts in front of us. If the old covenant blood of bulls and goats got me close, how much more abundantly sufficient must be the blood of the Messiah, the God-man, to bring me near to God? Not just close, but near with God. Verses 1 through 10 showed that the old tabernacle, it offered limited access to God, it offered insufficient sacrifices, and therefore it left the way to God, to being with God, it left it closed. Close but not near. How much more then will Christ bring us not close but near? You have three points in your notes, and these three things are not parallel as if they're, they're three unrelated things that Jesus does for us, but rather they're like links in a chain. The first link is that Jesus entered the most holy place. That link is going to lead to another, which leads to another. Jesus entered the most holy place. Look again with me at verse 11. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, 
Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Now, most of the phrases or elements here in these two verses contrast with something that the author has said about the old covenant in the first ten verses. So he he says that Jesus appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, or or it could be be rendered the coming good things, things that perhaps we taste now but in their fullness are, are yet future. These coming good things, that's in contrast to the good old days. Remember we talked about the good old days last week, and, and, and the ultimate good old days were Eden. The, the, the best days of, of a believer's life are not going back to that, but forward to something even better. The good things that are coming. We have tasted these things in limited ways through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, who is described by Paul in the New Testament as a, a down payment on glory. So because we have the New Testament and, 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 and other things that Christ has given us in this life, we enjoy fellowship now with the Godhead through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We enjoy freedom from the power of sin. We enjoy freedom from the penalty of sin. We progressively grow in Christ's likeness. We, we are able to serve God. We enjoy the community of the saints, fellowship with others who have been redeemed. But there is a better realm coming when we enjoy the coming good things in all of their fullness. So in, in addition to freedom from the power of sin and the penalty of sin, there will be freedom from even the presence of sin. There will be the eradication of, of death, pain, tears, darkness, evil, questions. We will no longer be hurt, nor will we hurt others. Perfect conformity to Christ's likeness in our character and conduct and in our bodies. We'll we'll know the ultimate fulfillment of serving God as we were designed to, where where we will live in perfect unity with one another, face-to-face with Christ, the Godhead living in our midst, What we have awaiting us, the coming good things, is a better Eden. Jesus, he says, is the high priest who's come to mediate between man and God so that we might have those coming good things. He also says that Jesus entered through a greater and more perfect tent. The earthly tabernacle of the old covenant was made by human hands. And it was made of earthly materials. It was based upon a copy shown to Moses on Mount Sinai. The tent which Jesus entered, though, not made by hands, not made of earthly materials, not a copy, but the real deal, God's actual throne room in heaven. The author calls that tent in in 8.2, he calls it the true tent, the true tent tent on which the tabernacle of the old tent was based, and therefore the tent that Jesus entered was greater and more perfect than the tabernacle of the old covenant. The author tells us also that Jesus entered once, entered once, and this is one time where less is more. One time ever Jesus entered that tent in His capacity of offering 
a sacrifice. That's a stark contrast to the Old Covenant tabernacle. And those of you who have been with us week after week, you know why. The old high priest entered the most holy place or the Holy of Holies every day of atonement. Every year on this one day, he goes in and and offers a sacrifice. He offers the blood of a bull and a goat. The work of atonement was never done as indicated by the fact that he's got to go back in the next year. He's got to go back in the next year and the next year. And he goes on and on and on. It never ends. Jesus went in one time, just once, never to offer another sacrifice again, indicating that His work of atonement was done. Now, how could that be possible? How could it be possible that Jesus' work as a high priest is accomplished in an afternoon while the old covenant high priests, their work is never done? It's because of the difference in their offerings. Jesus entered not with the blood of of animals, but with His own blood. That may be helpful for us to to be reminded of why blood has to be shed at all. What what, what is the deal with that? Well, the the, the fact that blood must be shed reminds us that God is a God of justice. And and we shouldn't want Him to be anything less. We've said it many times around here, but this is exactly what we expect of human judges. We expect them to be just. We expect them to, to levy appropriate sentences for crimes, and we would not tolerate a judge who, who did something else. God is a perfect judge in that He sees every infraction that is committed, and He makes sure that every infraction is paid for with justice. He's the source of all wisdom and righteousness. And so, no evil no evil goes unpunished before God. Now, Romans 6.23 tells us that the penalty for sin is death. So, sin, all sin, carries the death penalty. You sin, you die. That is the level of God's justice. Sin is so heinous committed against our holy God, that the only appropriate sentence is death. One of my kids has what many would consider a morbid icebreaker. She likes to ask people what their death row meal would be. You're you're about to be put to death by the state. What would you eat for your last meal? Now, now pretending that, 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 that I don't know the Lord Jesus, I think I'd probably be too upset to eat anything. Because of what death is. Death is more than just taking a dirt nap. It is separation from God. It's coming under the wrath of God. And and we have all committed so many infractions against God as to be sentenced to that death countless times. The shedding of animal blood in the old covenant tabernacle. What that did was it pictured the concept of a substitutionary death to pay the sins of one by another. So there's nothing magical about blood. The blood represented the death of that animal. The animal is being brought forth as one dying in the place of the sinner. And it should be obvious why 
animal blood wasn't sufficient, why it had to be done over and over and over. It's because in God's economy, animals aren't equal in worth to humans. Man is made in God's image. Man is the only creature made in God's image. Animals are not. Now, God, God, God cares for animals, and He expects us to do the same. But try as the world might to elevate animals to the level of humans, God isn't having it. God cares for the sparrows, according to Jesus in Matthew 10, 29. But Jesus then says, you are of more value than many sparrows. Humans and animals, they are not the same in terms of their value. You remember from Genesis chapter 9. This is just after the flood. And just after the flood, God institutes the, the law of capital punishment. Essentially, what God said is that, first of all, humans can kill and eat animals. So it's okay for a human to kill an animal. But if an animal kills a human, that animal must die. If a human kills a human, that human must die. Why? Because man is made in God's own image. And that being the case... If you want to substitute something to take the place of man in judgment, an animal won't do. It must be another man. And so the, the old covenant priests, they were taking in animals. And, and of course, that's, that's by God's design. But God commanded those sacrifices both to picture what was needed, a substitutionary sacrifice, and to show that those animal substitutes are not going to be sufficient. You need something to stand in the place of man, but it cannot be an animal. It's got to be a man. And so Jesus then comes, as, as, as any high priest would, offering blood, but not animal blood. Not blood that must be offered over and over and over, but He offers His own blood. A man being substituted for men. Now we're talking. The question is, how can one man be substituted for a countless remnant? Should there be one for one? One man die for every one man who has sinned? Well, this Jesus is not only a man. He, he is the perfect man. He is the Messiah, the Son of David. He's the King not only of Israel, but of the entire world. He is... The God-man, God the Son incarnate died on the cross. His blood was shed for the sin of people. He died in their place so that they wouldn't have to die. And, and the author of Hebrews said that, that this, Jesus offering His own blood, the King of David, the Messiah, the God-man offering His own blood, it secured an eternal redemption, not Outward ritual cleansing that, that wears off over time or a temporary ability to get close but not near to God. Rather, Jesus secured a forever salvation from sin and its consequences. We considered last time that redemption is freeing someone from slavery or oppression. Therefore, that Jesus secured an eternal redemption means that we are never to be slaves again. Never to be slaves again to sin, to death. 
Jesus entered the most holy place. It's the first link in the chain that the author gives us here in these four verses. The next link in the chain, Jesus cleanses the conscience. He cleanses the conscience. Verse 13, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish, purify our conscience from dead works? Now, that, that little word for at the beginning of verse 13 indicates that the author is about to draw a conclusion from the details that he's just given in verses 11 and 12. He's comparing, he's preparing, comparing what Jesus did to what was done in the old covenant tabernacle. And we've made explicit just now how, how those things line up and how, how they compare with one another. But, but here, the author focuses primarily on the respective sacrifices of the Old Covenant and, and the New Covenant. He refers again to the blood of bulls and goats, and he mentions the ashes of a heifer. Now, as we considered last week, the blood of bulls and goats, that, that likely refers to the, the, the Day of Atonement, that one day that the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. It could... This phrase, the blood of bulls and goats, it could refer to animal sacrifices more generally. It doesn't really matter which it refers to because the point is the same, okay? Now, he mentions the ashes of a heifer. If you're taking notes, you might write down Numbers 19. Numbers chapter 19. You can read all about the ashes of a heifer. I'll give you the Cliff's notes right now. When we were in Leviticus, we, we, we noted that contact with a dead body or an unclean animal made one ceremonially unclean. It meant that, that you had to be, you had to remove yourself outside the camp, outside the fellowship of God's people. All right? Well, Numbers 19 details a mechanism for those people to be made ceremonially clean so that they could be purified from their contact with the dead. And that mechanism entailed the death of and burning of an unblemished red heifer. So that, that animal is killed, it's burned, its ashes were then put into a container of water, and that water was kept outside the camp, and that's where people would go when they were defiled. They would go outside the camp, they would be sprinkled with that water which contained the ashes of a heifer. If you do that, then you can come back into the camp. All these implements that he mentions here, the blood of bulls and goats, the ashes of a heifer, all of these things were, were intended to purify the flesh, the, the, the body, the outward person. They, they wash your outside to make you ceremonially clean in order to, to enter concentric, concentric circles of closeness to God. All right? So, so you can, by being purified, you can enter the camp, and, and some of those in, in the camp can enter the tabernacle area, and some of those in the tabernacle area can go into the first section. One of those persons, every now and then, can go further in, but not near, not actually living life with God. Remember back in verse 10, the author called all of these regulations, he called them regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. If, if those things purified the flesh, allowed one to come closer to God, but not near God, how much more 
would the blood of Christ do? How much more? Infinitely more. The the blood of Christ purifies the conscience. Purification, again, it deals with uncleanness from physical defilement. but, but, But the problem is that it left the heart, the root of man's sin problem, the locus of his true guilt. It left that untouched. But the purification brought by Jesus is as much greater and deeper as His blood is more precious than the blood of animals. Jesus doesn't offer a a mere cleansing of the body, but cleansing of the conscience from the works that led to death, that led to separation from God. And this purification of the conscience, it speaks not just of removing from us the feeling of guilt. Sometimes when we speak of a guilty conscience, what are we saying? We're talking about that, that sense of one's guilt or, or awareness of, of guiltiness. But a purified conscience, if we, if we look at that concept across the Scriptures, we find that, that, that a purified conscience is Bible speak for a heart that is actually washed free of the guilt of sin. It's a complete removal of, of guilt and the stain of sin, not just dealing with the feeling of guilt. It actually removes it. For Christ offered Himself without blemish. We want to make sure that we, that we don't walk right past that phrase, without blemish. Remember that the Old Testament sacrifices in Leviticus, they also had to be without blemish, which meant that they had, they had to have no physical imperfections. Similarly, but more significant, Jesus offered Him as a sacrifice with no moral, no spiritual no heart imperfections because he never sinned. And, and the author has called our attention to that several times already in, in this letter to the Hebrews. Now, l- let me just ask you a question. Can you not sin? I mean, the, the answer may be surprising to you if, if, if we think about it. In a limited sense, actually you can. You cannot sin. As I stand before you right now, I am not killing anybody. I'm not murdering anybody right this second. And to my knowledge, none of you are killing anyone right now. You're just sitting here listening to me. To to my knowledge, knowledge, I'm not committing any sin right this second. We we can say no to particular sins and at particular times. And and you can bat a thousand if you only have one or two at-bats, but but can we say no to all sin all the time? Can we do that? Of course, the answer is no. Now, Jesus, He had all the chances to sin that any other person has. He had, he had, he had all the at-bats that you and I have. Hebrews 4.15 says that, that He, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Never even sin once. So th- th- think, think about all of that in, in more personal terms. For every time that you have said yes to sin, for every time that you have said yes to sin, Jesus said no. For every time 
that you have said no to God? Jesus said, yes. Every work that you did to earn death, every work that you did to earn death, Jesus refused. And every righteous work that you refused, Jesus accomplished with delight. Now, now, now what ends up being the consequence of that? Just as the sacrifices of the old covenant were physically unblemished so that they might purify the body, so the sacrifice of the new covenant, Jesus Christ, was unblemished in all ways so that He might purify the whole person. What the author called in verse 12 an eternal redemption. And the Lord Jesus did this through the eternal Spirit, the text says. That is, the Spirit empowered Jesus, strengthened Jesus to obey perfectly so that He might present Himself to God the Father without blemish, without blemish, without blemish, so that that we might be purified, 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 washed clean of the stain of sin. You know, the, the, the stain of sin has no claim on you if you have repented and trusted in Jesus. It has no claim on you. If you've turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus to save you, every righteous thing you refused, every unrighteous thing that you ran to and, and did, all of it has been dealt with to the ultimate degree because Jesus obeyed in your stead. And where you disobeyed, He took that guilt upon Himself and died on the cross for it. Such that Isaiah, looking forward in the Spirit to these days, he could say, though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Talked a moment ago about the fact that that we tend to think of the the clean conscience as as pertaining specifically to the knowledge of sin or or, or the feeling of guilt. And and again, that's not the idea here. Jesus does more than that. He, He actually scrubs the heart of actual guilt, the removal of sin, whether we feel it or not. And, and, and so what, what, that, what that should mean is that it actually then should address our consciences. Those of us who have repented and trusted in Jesus. You may feel guilty for a sin committed long ago, for, for a sin that has been forgiven by re- repentance and faith in Christ. And so you need to think then about what is true. All right? And, and, and when I say that, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not saying ignore your feeling, ignore your emotions of guilt. Those emotions and feelings, that feeling that says, I'm guilty for that, I'm still guilty for that, that is a warning light on the dashboard saying that you're not thinking rightly. So you, you don't want to ignore that emotion, follow it to its root, which is that you're not thinking the truth. You're not thinking rightly about sin and redemption. And so the answer, the, the, the way to address that warning light on the dashboard is to fill your mind with the truth, to, to address this root. And, and, and that, that root, again, is that you're not thinking rightly. And once you do that, the warning light should go off. You might, you, you, you might say, you might feel, you might think, okay, say, man, I, just feel, I feel so terrible. 
for, for that thing that I did so long ago. I just can't get over it. Meditate on this passage that we're looking at this morning. And do not regard the blood of Christ that, that merely gets you close, but not near. His is not the sacrifice of an animal, but the supreme, supremely pleasing and pure blood that is His own. The, the capacity of Jesus' blood to, to, to drown the guilt of sin is infinite. And your sin from the past, heinous as it may have been, it poses no challenge to the unblemished sacrifice of Christ. If animals could cleanse the body, how much more will the blood of Christ, the eternal Son incarnate, purify your conscience from dead works? Now, for, for, some, for some of us, we, we've committed sins that, that continue to carry consequences even into today. Consequences for us and consequences for, for people around us. And, and for those of us that are, that are in that situation, that is often why we still feel guilty. My, my, my consequences, the temporal consequences that, that are continuing to result from that sin, they remind me of that sin. And, and, and then the, the, the people around me, perhaps, they're still hurting because of what I did. And so I just feel guilty. Again, you, you have got to think rightly. Temporal consequences for sin, they can remain after guilt has been removed through forgiveness. It's absolutely the case. But the residual effects of your sin, they say nothing about your current guilt. If you have repented and turned to Christ in faith to cover that sin, even while the temporal consequences may not go away, your guilt does and you stand purified before God. When you, when you feel a sense of, of guilt for sin already forgiven, memorize, personalize verses 13 and 14 and let them be the refrain of your life. If the blood of bulls and goats sanctify for the pure purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ purify my conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Let that be the song of your life. And every time, every time your, your imperfect conscience accuses you, every time the enemy accuses you, every time people around you accuses you, the world accuses you of that forgiven sin, sing that song, if the blood of bulls and goats can purify the conscience, how much more the blood of Christ can cleanse my conscience to serve the living God. Jesus entered the most holy place, first link, that He might cleanse our conscience, the second link, and that leads to the third link in the chain. Jesus frees us to serve God. He frees us to serve God. How much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Some of us, we, we might be just fine without that last phrase. Because we may think that, that the blood of Christ purifies our conscience from dead works and that's the great blessing of the gospel. No more consciousness of guilt. 
may God make that not enough for us. Because this last phrase is the great payoff. Jesus entering the most holy place to cleanse our consciences served this, our freedom, our privilege, our glory to live in fellowship with God, imaging Him in service to Him as He designed us to do. The ultimate blessing of, of God's work in Christ is not a clean conscience. We, we, we would call it a penultimate conscience. The, the, the prefix pen means almost. It's, a, it's the almost ultimate blessing, that clean conscience. The ultimate conscience is the blessing of serving the living God. Now, how, how, does, how, how do these two links go together? What's the logical connection between a clean conscience and our freedom to serve the living God? Remember that a clean conscience here and, and across the Bible, it tends to refer to a heart actually purified from guilt and the stain of sin. When, when we do not have that, when we do not have that cleanness before God, that scrubbing free of guilt, that cleansed heart, then there is by definition standing sin between, between us and God. And, and so we can't come near Him. And, and, and that's our whole problem. But once that guilt is removed, once our, our, our conscience is, is purified, our hearts washed, we are able to enter His presence and live life with Him, serving Him just as we were created to, to do. Now, some of us may, may think, this seems like a consolation prize. I mean, I'm, I'm just not super excited about serving anybody. I, I, I'm not excited about that. And for, for, for some of us who feel that way, we feel that way because we actually misunderstand our own created nature. All right? Not our fallen nature but our created nature. For, for God, through Christ, to return us to a place of freedom to serve Him is for Him to put us in a place where we can flourish in accordance with our design. To flourish in accordance with our design. We were designed to serve God. When we don't serve God, we can only malfunction and be discontent. Let me just use... Uh, an illustration of this. Some of us have dogs. Some people in, in the world, maybe, maybe you're in this, in this place, maybe you choose a dog, a breed of dog, based on what it looks like, as opposed to what it was bred to do. So you choose a God because of, I like the way that looks, rather than how that dog is, is wired. And, and, and when we do that, we we, we make the mistake sometimes, some people do, and, and if you feel like saying amen, go ahead. You choose a working breed, and you expect that working breed to be your couch potato lap dog. Yeah, I heard a yep over here. Somebody's done it. Now, what, what, you're, what, what you're doing, and no condemnation to anybody, but what you're doing is you are, you're forcing that dog to live contrary to its design. Working dogs aren't called to be, they aren't called working dogs because of what they do, but because of what they are. They, they, are, they are working dogs because of what they were bred for. 
It's what they want to do. Now, now just like those, those who have genuine lap dogs, those, those, those dogs want nothing more, nothing out of life other than to sit on your lap and be adored. Working dogs want nothing more than to herd other animals, protect people, track scents, pull sleds. When they can't work, they will either become broken or they will tear up the world around them. Because they only thrive when they are living in accordance with how they were bred. They want to serve. It's in their design. When they're working, they are free. They're free to live like what they are. When Christ entered the Holy of Holies to cleanse our consciences, He freed us to be who we were designed to be, and we were designed to serve the living God. And to to, to live in fellowship with Him. To, to manage His creation and to image Him to that creation. Every problem that we have comes from rejecting our own design. The heart that says, I, I want to go my own way. I want to do my own thing. I, I, I don't want to do what God designed me to do. That is the heart of Adam. Adam wanted to chart his own course and it ruined everything. In a sense, Adam's sin tore up the whole world. But what about the second Adam? Think about the second Adam. Jesus Christ did not say, I want to chart my own course. I want to be my own man. I want to do my own thing. But rather, Jesus said, my food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. And I would suggest to you that that impulse in the heart of Christ is the most human impulse ever displayed in that it shows man's created nature, not his fallen, adulterated, rebellious nature. The human freed to serve the living God is similar to that police canine who's chasing bad guys and is as happy as a clam doing that. Or that search and rescue dog is looking for the missing child. In every part of their being, they're saying, This is life. This is what I was made for. And I'm pressing on to the reward. The person freed to serving the living God says, I want nothing more than to say no to sin. I want nothing more than to tell the good news of the gospel. I want to live in ways that commend the gospel to the people around me. I want to help my fellow believers grow spiritually. I want to see the lost found. I want to worship privately and publicly. I want my life to look like the character of Almighty God in Jesus Christ. This is life. This is what I was made for. And I'm pressing on to the reward. Human existence tends to be filled with discontent. And it is because we have become accustomed to close enough and not near. We have settled for life without God. And many believers functionally are settling for life without God. And we can see that in ourselves, we can see it in those around us, in that we are not living in accordance with God's design that we would know and serve Him with everything that we are. We're living contrary to our design. We we don't recognize our, our actual purpose 
serving Him. And so, the, the answer for us, if we find ourselves in that place, is first of all to think rightly, as we've already talked about. Secondly, it is to, it is to invest ourselves in living out what we are. Baseline service to God requires joining a local church. I, I, I won't take time to, to justify that statement again. I've, I've done so many times before, but I'll, I'll just encourage you if, you, if you're skeptical of that, I'll just encourage you to read the New Testament and ask yourself, is it even possible to live as a disciple is called to live in the New Testament without having a, a formal local expression of the body of Christ to whom I'm committed and, to whom, and, and, and who is committed to me. I suggest to you it's not possible. So the, a, a place to start to live in light of our design is to be part of a local church. That's just the beginning though. Then, then to live in light of our design is to serve in that church. And that, that could mean serving in a formal capacity. We've got people who for, for serve in formal capacities in this church. We're very grateful for that. Thank you. Perhaps more importantly, serving God means serving in informal capacities in the church. Helping other people to grow spiritually by spending time together, reading the Word and praying and doing life together. Seeking out people who are further along the road than we are and asking for their help. Seeking out people who are not as far along as we are and helping them. That is serving the living God. Serving the living God is also serving outside the church where, where we leverage every association that we have to spread the good news. This world is dying of sin and death. That, that is absolutely true. There's no way around it. And Jesus Christ Himself has said that He is the only answer to that problem. He's the only answer to man's sin and death. And to hoard that answer, for whatever reason, to hoard that answer is to hate. To share that answer is to love. And it is also service to God. Serve God in the church. Serve God outside the church. Serve God in your family. View every relationship that you have in your home as a platform for glorifying Christ. And if you want to know what that looks like, just read the New Testament again. One place where you can find a, a whole lot of it is, is Ephesians chapter 5 and 6. Ephesians chapter 5 and 6. It will, it will give, you, give you an idea of what it looks like to serve in your home the living God. You could also look to the book of Proverbs for that. The Bible is not silent about what it looks like to serve Him in your home. Devote yourself to service there. Serve God by viewing everything that you do. Everything that you do in private, even in your own mind, and everything you do in public as an act of worship. You know, every time you open your mouth, it's an opportunity either to glorify the Lord or to glorify yourself. Choose Him. Serve Him with your faculty of speech. Every thought that you think, every minute that you invest, every resource that you allocate, every one of them opportunities to worship God or worship myself, to function in accordance with my design or to go my own way. People who, who see themselves at their core as servants of God 
through Jesus Christ and who live in accordance with that identity. These are the people who find even in this life, even in this fallen world, they are the ones who find fulfillment. Do you know why? Because they're living in accordance with God's design. They, 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 are, they, are, they are living in, here's the key word, they are living in freedom. Service to God is freedom. And living that way in this life, that is just a little glimpse of eternity. In that life in the new heaven and earth will be nothing but knowing and serving God. Brothers and sisters, don't try to be content with close. Don't try to be content with, with, with almost it will not work. Live the life that, that, that God has given us in Christ through the shedding of His blood. If the blood of bulls and, and, and goats were sufficient to get us close, how much more has the blood of Christ brought us near with so that we might serve the living God, fellowshipping with Him with a purified conscience? Let us live in that place. Now, in, in the coming moments after I pray, we're going to observe a, a moment of silent reflection. And may the Holy Spirit speak to each one of us and give us even more specific ways to apply the things that we have seen this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the truth. We thank You for the blood of Christ, which does so much more than the blood of animals. It does so much more than these other things that we may try to fill our lives with in order to find some sense of fulfillment. Lord, grant us to grasp the truth that our purpose is to know and serve You. Help us to see Christ as Christ and His sacrifice of His life, His blood is the only avenue for us to, to get there. We pray, Father, that, that our lives would be lived in the joy of knowing a Savior who has given us so much more than merely close. He has brought us near. He's given us life with You. And Father, as we, as we are silent for a few minutes would you please minister to us by your Spirit, by giving each of us an indication of where specifically we may be living as if close is good enough. Please grant us dissatisfaction with us. With that, grant us to repent of it and to pursue life with you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.